So I want to give just a quick intro into this class that I'm releasing here in my podcast. And I believe this is the second class um, that I have put out there. And it'll probably be the last because I don't want to release too much of the content within that program. But I do feel like this is such a needed and important conversation that I wanted to um, release it here. So this is a class on unpacking power dynamics within healthcare and what it means to serve sovereign women. And so I talk a lot about occupational licensure, the pillars of inherited systems, the ego within expertise. I give a quick overview of the history of modern allopathic medicine. It's a really uh, vast and dark history, but I just give a quick intro into it because I feel like it's so important to know our history. So this is a class I feel like both women who want to just know their history would appreciate, but also wise women practitioners, because it gives a lot of reflection points, internal reflection points to deepen their integrity. And these are all things that I've been unpacking for years as I explore these insidious hierarchical dynamics uh, within wellness, within healthcare, within health licensure, and sort of the indoctrination of modern educational and vocational training. And my license was a massage therapist, so certainly lower on this totem pole of indoctrination and um, really just like pressure from obeying the state compared to people like midwives or um, nurse practitioners or chiropractors or any other person who's a little bit higher up on that ladder of hierarchy and pressure. But it really all applies and it's all relevant and I am just happy to bring this out to the public and and to you to listen in and explore what all of this brings up for you. So if you are, um, if this class and these topics touched you, if you are a wise woman practitioner, always feel free to reach out. I have my email in the show notes. So I also want to say that I'm not currently in a season of doing one-on-one work with women. I've taken a step back from that as I give all of my, most of my attention to mothering my young daughter. And um, so pretty much I do this podcast, which I love. And then I have a learning library up on my website where you can find my general womb massage workshop. You can find my scar tissue massage workshop my pelvic care training where this class comes from, which is a deepening into the wise woman knowledge that I have developed and cultivated over the years. So you can specialize in womb and pelvic care and pretty much all of those classes and offerings will support any woman who I would have served through a one-on-one session. So as always, you can find that in the show notes and Let's move into my solo workshop class, Power Dynamics and Serving Sovereign Women. And thank you for being here. I'm so glad you're here for what I consider a very important topic for practitioners. And it can be a confronting discussion too, because I'm going to ask you to ask yourself the difficult questions like, 
how have I been using the inherent power dynamics in my work with women? Am I part of a system that isn't working anymore? Do I need to make some radical changes in how I serve women if I really purport to be for their health? Or if you haven't begun this work yet, how can you answer this calling in the most integral way right from the start? But you know, there is never too late a time to shift things up in your work. (sighs) So to work with sovereign women takes a huge mentality and paradigm shift. And it starts with freeing yourself, of course. Um, And that's something I'm going to lay out a little bit in this class, just what it means to me. And I'm going to give you a lot to think about. And, you know, you can leave it at that and possibly better the work you're doing in this world. It's up to you how you want to take in this information and integrate it into your life and into your practice. Um, And I feel like this is such an important discussion for practitioners. I'll say that I have never taken a workshop or a training or heard any beloved mentor of mine discuss this topic, how to break free of imbalanced power dynamics and reflect on how we practice and really just re-envision what it could look like to serve women in their sovereignty and autonomy and have true respect for them. So this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to talk about here. And really my agenda here is I want to see changes in women globally, in people, in culture, and encourage more sovereignty because I see that dependency will never create health and agency and a truly thriving world. And I want to open up space in the wellness sphere for a culture that doesn't rely on this ego of expertise and truly respects the autonomy of the women who come into our doors. So this is a big shift. We're going to talk about licensure in this class and, you know, working within a system and the pillars of that system that we've inherited. Those are things that are familiar to you probably as we all live within systems. And often we don't know the full story of how it originated And it can shed a lot of light and help us understand what we inherited and if we want to continue that inheritance, right? So I'm going to talk about what I see as real true wellness. I'm going to talk about that, you know, largely within this training, but here, how the unconscious power dynamics that we tend to just, you know, subconsciously perpetuate steals from that possibility of women really coming to a place of healing in their lives. When a woman has personally transformed her wounds and her traumas through womb and pelvic connection, the traumas that live here, maybe it's, you know, that she healed her painful periods through pelvic steaming and discovered that it healed something deeper within her. When she discovers for herself the simple truth that her womb is the seat of her power, how she comes back to herself how she channels her wisest self when a woman has felt this for herself in her own body and she wants to guide women back to this knowing it is a calling, a calling. That's the word that I continue to use, you know, throughout this training to do women's work of any kind is a beautiful and a sacred path, whether that is birth work or womb work or serving women along the motherhood journey or helping them heal reproductive imbalances or whatever it is, whether they realize it or not, this is holy work. And, you know, you probably already know all of this. Serving women is never just serving women. I see it as an investment into the future of humanity. Women are the lifeblood and the life givers of this planet And when women feel broken and disconnected from their power, and this is a huge cultural issue, it's not just this uh, practitioner-woman relationship, but it does help embed it further, right? When women feel disconnected from their power, there can never be a healthy world. And it is what I see as the deepest tragedy that we hold, this degradation of women on our planet. 
And when we feel the call to do women's work, we are a drop in the ocean of healing that. Every woman that we help matters. And then when we're invited deeper into the holiest area of a woman, into her pelvic wellness, this is an honor. And you know this, you may sense this truth that it really calls for the utmost, the highest integrity. And that's why I keep talking about this. You know, this is the path of the medicine woman, which has traditionally been, you know, a very esteemed role. And so now we get to re-envision what that means because, of course, it's very different than in the past. And so we're going to get into that history in this class and what has happened to the medicine woman over time. But that's the first thing to understand is that being a witness and a guide to a woman's pelvic healing, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, and I tend to believe that it's always kind of a combination of these things, that this is an honor. This is portal work. It calls for you to walk a path of dissecting where you're out of alignment, where you're unconsciously benefiting from imbalanced power dynamics and discover for yourself what it means to actually serve women in their sovereignty if you want to support their true and expansive healing. I'm going to talk about the history of licensure, how it started, and where we are now. And it's not comprehensive. It's a huge history, but I'm going to discuss some of these basics just to get into this topic. All right, so when we talk about licensure, I'm going to be referring to occupational licensing, of course, where there are set trainings and standards and fees and continuing education in order to participate in certain vocations. And these are all set by the state government. And I'm really just focusing here on the U.S. Licensed occupations are something that is in place in probably most every country. And everyone who holds a license must partake in regulations set by that state licensing body. So we'll focus on the U.S., but this is a practice that is pretty global. So over the last 50 years, only 5% of the population was licensed. Today, it's 25%. So that's a huge jump, right? And it's not just the number of professions that are required to be licensed, but the educational standards have increased. The fees to maintain licensure have increased. And it also takes much longer to get licensed now than it ever has before. Now, this might all seem like really great things on the surface. Uh, You know, the main arguments for widespread occupational licensing is that it improves public health and safety. The more training and red tape, the more quality will increase in practitioners, right? But actually, this isn't seen to be true. And there are a few arguments here. Analysts and economists mostly agree that there is no evidence that occupational licensing actually does improve health. One point is that licensing standards aren't uniform across states. And studies have also found that more stringent standards lead to actually more widespread poor outcomes. And so when you license professions and you create more barriers to entry, the costs rise for consumers, and then they tend to forgo those services. So that's how it actually can contribute to poor health. And, you know, there's many professions where licensure doesn't lead to too many moral or otherwise trade-offs for for certain health practitioners, like, for example, massage therapists or acupuncturists. But abiding by rules and regulations set by the state carries a huge weight for midwives in particular, where they must choose between actually serving women or following non-evidence-based restrictive rules set by the state that routinely harm women and force them out of their care at the last minute for, again, reasons that are not evidence-based. Now, that's infantilizing in itself, and that's been the message in a lot of government laws for more control. This idea that the public can't make their own decisions, 
that they're not smart enough to do their own research and that they must be protected for their own good. And, you know, that's not how I see people. That's not how I treat people. It's not how I see myself. Um, So it's really just something to think about. How do you feel about those messages? How do you feel about, you know, um, supporting a culture like that? And so who actually benefits from limiting entry into a job field and by having these stringent standards for entry? First, it does benefit those who are already in, you know, the occupation from competition. Of course, it benefits the state government who receives quite a lot of money overall in exchange for each person holding and maintaining that license. And certainly in cases like healthcare, it maintains a hierarchical power pyramid where in healthcare, doctors are at the top and don't have as many restrictions. And then as you go down the pyramid, those restrictions are higher and higher. And um, it's good to remember that, you know, even those at the top are at risk for losing their license and their ability to support themselves and their family if they don't agree with the current paradigm. And this is something that has been seen a lot in the last couple of years in doctors who, you know, promoted alternative and safe treatments for COVID. They got their license taken away. So no one person really has the power when they hold the license. The people at the very top set the rules. They hold people's livelihoods in their hands and they can choose to take these licenses away if the people disobey. So when I started to unpack a lot of this, that felt very uh, patronizing, authoritarian, and just part of this hierarchical standard hierarchical model that I didn't really want to be a part of anymore. Now, let's go back a bit. We all know the basics about what are called the witch burning times, but the true horror of it is something that a lot of us don't know. They didn't really talk about it in depth in school. Maybe we haven't really wanted to dive into it much ourselves. Um, We likely know that it was a time period of several hundred years where women healers were persecuted for working as folk healers. They worked with plants or they were midwives. They served birthing women and families from birth to death. And that the burning times were spearheaded by the Catholic Church to eradicate the wise women. And those things are all true. From the early 1400s to around 1650 in Europe, there are estimates that somewhere between a quarter and a half of a million people were executed for this crime of witchcrafting quotes. And 85% of those people were women, mostly over the age of 40. And there are over 3 million estimated trials that are recorded. And these numbers vary a lot. It's hard to get a kind of accurate picture, but this is this is a huge amount of people that were uh, interrogated, that were executed, that were a part of this as witnesses, as just part of the community. This was uh, the culture. And these were brutal deaths that happened at this time. You know, we know the burning alive at the stake, uh, people were tied up and thrown in water to drown. There was torture when being interrogated. There's a horrific book called Malleus Maleficarum that documented and suggested all the ways to torture someone to death. And it literally demonized what was basically shamanism and herbalism and plant medicine and made it a crime worthy of death. People were scared for their lives to be associated with any of these things by the end of this. And it was pure misogyny. It was a smear campaign against women and their knowings, their connection with other worlds. It basically said that women were analogous to evil and men were of the light as polarities in nature in this book. Now at this time, the churches, surprise, were opening medical universities that were only open to men, of course, where they would teach the science of medicine from books and in classrooms. Now, at first, the problem they had was one of competition. 
you know, people trust it and they honor the wisdom of their village and community medicine women and healers. No woman wanted a man in the room when she was giving birth, much less like touching her, catching her baby and having her lie down in front of them and um, have them have front row seats, right? So to really change the minds and hearts of the people required quite an insidious and evil way to get people to completely distrust their wisdom for millennia and guide them into these hospitals run by the church um, and barbaric medieval medical doctors. Because at first, you know, that's what they were. They didn't have the wise elders teaching them. A lot of the knowledge that they learned was disembodied and harmful and they were testing a lot of things. That's where the barber surgeons come in, the bloodletting, not understanding the basics of sanitation and completely erasing the shamanic elements that the medicine women and healers worked with, the prayers they gave to their ancestors and the spirits. All of that was gone from this new medicine from the church. And this is the beginnings of modern allopathic medicine and licensure and academic barriers to entry for healthcare fields for the real feeling in any doctor's office or ER or hospital, there is something missing. It's not holistic, right? So back to the Middle Ages. At first, it started off um, in the beginning as fines or imprisonment, imprisonment, but then that wasn't quite enough. People still visited their beloved healers who knew the plants, who worked with the unseen forces, who knew their families and were a part of their village. And then uh, traditional healers were called, quote, practicing medicine without a license. And that's still a term that is used today. And since the witch hunts were most about gaining more religious followers and ensuring the domination of the church and its paradigm and worldview and eradicating earth-based spirituality and practices, they declined naturally in the 17th century when a treaty was made. Now, this is a treaty called the Peace of Westphalia. It was done in, or was created in 1648, and it was a treaty that ended two religious wars and it established a new balance of power in Europe. The Protestant and the Catholic churches didn't need to compete for followers anymore by persecuting witches since the treaty gave them a monopoly on certain regions. And so the witch hunts declined. It was all about the church and power. But sadly, after literally hundreds of years of this widespread indoctrination and demonization of goddess and earth worship and folk healers and plant medicine, and really just like the internal image of a healer as being a woman, a wise woman, not a man in a white coat, a lot of this this was largely eradicated enough in the hearts and the psyches of people, you know, at least in their conscious mind, and the hunts didn't need to be continued on such a scale. But I do feel like this knowing has always been kept alive since then in secret, And even in the collective unconscious, when there were no people to continue it in certain regions, it's something that will never be eradicated, no matter how much they try. And so the word medicine is another word that has been co-opted by the state to refer to someone who treats symptoms of an issue without understanding real root cause healing and spiritual healing and emotional healing. And the primary treatment tools are usually pharmaceuticals or toxic products with chemicals in them. And so when I distinguish between that and holistic healing, for me, it means to take much more into account than a person's physical symptoms and trying to get rid of them. I see this as multifaceted, including a person's emotions, trauma history, relationships, family patterns, and inheritances. Then there are multi-generational and collective woundings, such as the loss of village and tribe that we all feel, this oppression and 
torture of women and the erasure of spirit and the sacred within our communities and within our hearts and our families. And these are wounds that we're called to heal this time for our descendants and for the future. And there are wounds around this history that I share that particularly live in the psyches of those who practice folk medicine, lead entheogenic plant medicine journeys, herbalists, midwives, body workers, healers of all kinds. They live within the collective as this type of medicine, the kind that doesn't rely on pharmaceuticals and surgeries, continues to be denigrated and dismissed at best as quackery and at worst as dangerous or even demonic from certain uh, religious sects or parts of the world. And this colonization of folk wisdom and medicine gifts from the earth lives within the current allopathic medical paradigm. It is literally alive in every single part of it. And that's something that is quite apparent when you start to unpack every single part of it. And you know, it has its place, of course, but that should be a given. That should be a given that when there is an emergency that they're the perfect people to help. But we're not talking about emergencies in this, right? So again, yeah, it's literally alive in every part of it. This, um, There's the patronizing language of compliance from patients and the complaints that they come in with. Even the word evidence, anything without scientific evidence is automatically dismissed. And so I always go back to elder wisdom as a foundation and bring in my own intuition around it. And I feel that oral traditions are the most evident to me that something works, that something has value. I mean, it's actually stood the test of time. So, you know, most of the time I do use my instincts and inquire about its history. If something feels off, I am a pretty critical person. I don't really, you know, I have my critiques about a lot of um, alternative remedies and uh, modalities, but so I'm going to do some research about it and see what my own personal conclusion is. So I collaborate between new understandings and old knowings and, uh, I think it's always important to question and be open and to release the dogma and ideology, whether that's being attached to ancient wisdom or new science or inherited family or cultural beliefs. (sighs) So let's just take a deep breath now. A moment of pause. I know that This is a very heavy and very dark history, what I shared, but I also feel like we need to know our history. We need to know where we stand as we walk into the medicine role, the medicine woman role, and we need to keep alive the ways of our female ancestors who died for this knowledge, who died to preserve the old ways, who died because they wouldn't stop helping their community who would rather die than lie about their lineages and their practices. This is integrity. Those who would rather die than betray themselves. Let's just let that sink in a little bit. And know that you can tap into that strength. That, you know, this lineage of healers and wise women, that's your lineage you're doing this work because you felt a calling to it. And that is the wise woman knowing that you were the one to continue this work. There's a calling for you to do this work. So that is the pillar on which modern medicine stands and the current structure of healthcare professions share that core of denigration and lies of torture demonization of folk medicine and traditional knowing and the full entwinement of religion with it. Um, Even if, of course, the current practitioners, they aren't all continuing with this and they don't all believe in this, of course, but it is the core and the pillar on which it stands. And it comes with it 
a sense of superiority and hierarchical structures that don't actually serve us or the women who come to us. And again, you know, it doesn't overtly show up most of the time, but its dynamics are insidious and they interweave throughout a person and their psyche. You know, your schooling, if you went to school for what you do, indoctrinated you into a certain way of practicing and thinking and interacting with those that you're serving that is just really unconscious. And as sensitive and wise women, we're drawn to healing work as part of our ancestral lineage as healers and witches and medicine women. But we operate within this paradigm because the consequences are steep or they can be. Um, There are practical consequences such as fines and imprisonment, just like the old days. Then there's that witch wound that lives within us, that cellular remembrance of persecution for serving women in our community with plants, the elements and energy work and our hands and our knowing, all of the ways that we practice and guide and hold space for healing. And we fear for our livelihoods or we're, you know, trained to fear for our livelihood if we don't abide by the rules, but we also fear in this deeper way that our very lives are at stake from this collective memory of this, of this history that I shared. And when we talk about serving sovereign women, and I'll go in depth into that pretty soon, but We also have to talk about freeing ourselves. And it's not just about holding a license and abiding by rules. It is the imbalanced hierarchical structures and unhealthy power dynamics that are embedded into the work you do. And, you know, I just mentioned this, but even if you feel like you're not doing that, if you went to school to learn your vocation, you were indoctrinated in that way. And it's something to that you have to unlearn from that. And if you ever had, you know, a power violation in your life and you couldn't speak up at the time and you later wished you said or did something in the moment, but you didn't, you couldn't. If you grew up in our culture that indoctrinated you to obey hierarchy and be submissive, all of these things, you inherited a structure that told you the ones on top held the power and the influence And you were limited in the face of that. Women have been really trained to be uncomfortable with hierarchy. And many of us would just prefer to deny that power dynamics exist um, or this idea that we should just abolish hierarchy if that was even possible, um, that that is the source of the problem. But let's take the charge out of it. This can be really neutral and we can use it for good. Power dynamics are simply just a way of hum- of organization for humans and animals. And so the first thing to kind of understand is that there is an inherent power differential that's going to happen when one person holds more knowledge than another. And that's not going to go away. And I'm here to tell you that we don't need it to either. I really do believe that power dynamics in general are neutral and they're an innate part of animal and human organization. And I do see how they can be kind of dynamic and shifting from moment to moment sometimes. Power is attention. Whoever is directing the attention holds the power. And so in conversations with another We often shift and exchange power seamlessly. In practitioner-client relationships, it's one-sided to some degree, right? We don't share our lives with the women we see. They're here so that we could listen to them and help them. And so we do hold the more dominant role in that dynamic. And again, that's not a bad thing. We need to release that judgment about that. Um, With consciousness, we really do have the opportunity to shift from using that power differential that's already there, that is, you know, may initially start as feeding our ego and holding the keys to knowledge to actually using it for good, using it to influence and inspire 
And, you know, I have this visual of just like holding our hands out and offering back the self-care wisdom and the tools so that she can remember that she is the healer. Holding out her hand, holding us holding out our hands to offer her everything, all our wisdom. Um, we are the witnesses. We are the guides and the wise women, the medicine women. These old ways are the power dynamics of dependency and scarcity. And, you know, again, it can feel confronting to realize that we may have been operating from that place. It definitely was for me when I started to think about this stuff. You know, maybe we subconsciously feel like others need us or they can't do the work without us or, you know, they don't know what they're doing or maybe even that we don't want them on some level to have all the tools because then they won't come back to see us. And these are just some common things that you may think that that people tend to hold on to in these practitioner roles. And this can really be a hard thing to sit with, all of these things that, you know, this kind of shift from understanding that we're not needed, we're wanted, and we have value and gifts to give people, but it is not dependent on them needing us. And it's not dependent on us being better than them and knowing more than them um, and holding all the keys in our hands. And so it's really these subconscious beliefs that prevent women from feeling fully in their power around you. And this is a really important piece too, because a lot of this is felt by the women who come see you on a subconscious deeper level. Um, it affects whether they're comfortable with you. It affects, you know, how they speak around you. It affects their own feelings about their healing. And so you have a lot of power to influence and um, create resonance within her to encourage her to step in her power, to encourage her to know that she can heal herself, that she can do this. So again, I want, I want to say that again, that it's all of these beliefs that practitioners are holding on to that prevent women from feeling fully in their power around you. So along with the witch wound and that fear of persecution is the sister wound that we're talking about. There's that sense of competition and scarcity. And this has to do with the women that see you as well as other practitioners, how could that be serving you if you're working with women? <laughs> it's going to be a barrier in some way to really serving them in authentic love and care. And so really unpacking this sister wound that we hold, um, seeing where in our lives do we actually feel in competition with other women and how do we reprogram that and understand that there really is no competition Every single practitioner and woman has her own unique offerings that she gives to the women that seek her. And you really just never know whether a, a woman, a client, needs what you have to, has to offer or you know, whether she needs what someone else has to offer. And when you can just release that, um, that's the beginning of healing that sister wound. So how much more expansive would it feel to hold these statements as true within yourself? A woman has everything she needs within to heal herself. There is no real competition. There is a perfect guide for each woman at different times in her life. What if those statements were true? What if you knew them as true? How would that feel? Now, again, it doesn't mean you're not needed. It's a shift from knowing that no one needs you to recognizing that they want to be around you. We're humans. We need to be around others. We receive so much spoken and unspoken from being around those who hold wisdom and the qualities that we want. 
from, and, and also, you know, just basically receiving all the wisdom that they hold. And so when there's trauma, we have an internal incoherence and really deeply benefit and are able to regulate and normalize and reprogram a coherence from someone who has a healthy nervous system. And this is another point to how important it is to do your own healing work and to realize that you are just inherently a role model and a mentor. Again, the medicine woman position calls for the highest integrity. And this is what I mean about that. Now, let's talk about what it actually means to serve sovereign women, to encourage sovereignty, to give the power back to women. And, you know, again, it doesn't mean completely eradicated power dynamics, but merely a rebalancing and a re-understanding of what they actually are. As a guide for women, you know, you are a wisdom keeper. You hold knowledge that this person is seeking by coming to you. And it's just important to release some of the ego that tends to come with that. And one way I do this in my work and in my life is by paying a lot of attention to the words and the terms that I use. And it actually makes quite a big difference. So here are a few examples. Instead of the word healer or practitioner, though I do, of course, use that sometimes just for clarity, especially in this training, but I do prefer prefer guide, uh, witness, wise woman, medicine woman, because, you know, first of all, I've always been kind of resistant to the word healer and just this understanding that we're not healing anyone, right? Like the woman is doing this on her own. We're really just space holders. Um, and practitioner feels it's not, it's not a horrible word. Um, of course you feel free to use it if you like, but I do tend to not use that word as much and just prefer to keep things more in the realm of, um, more impersonal and uh, connected in my relationships with women that come to see me instead of just like assuming that hierarchical role which practitioner kind of does feel like sometimes to to hold Um, and so on the other side I don't really use the word client or patient rarely I'll say the word client um, just to clarify what I'm talking about but I talk about women I'm serving. I talk about women who are coming to see me, the women I see. The etymology of the word patient is actually one who suffers. And the etymology of client comes from a Latin word meaning to follow, to incline, to bend. And this is evident in a lot of the ways that healthcare practitioners talk about the people that come in to see them. They talk about complaints they're coming in with. They talk about compliance, which is a word that I just hate. And what that feels like to me is like another authority figure who doesn't recognize a person's autonomy and that they're in charge of their own health. I don't see uh, the women who are coming to me as these victims who are suffering and that, you know, I can bend to my will (laughs) and make them compliant. Um, they're in charge of their own health. They're in charge of whatever practices they actually want to take and implement in their own lives. I can offer all the tools, but it's really up to them and they're not going to receive any guilt from me if they're not doing them. Um, all of that is just more hierarchy within healthcare. So sovereign health is more than just taking your own healing into your hands I see it as really an entire change of one's life, of questioning inherent systems that don't serve them, that don't care about them, that are really meant to just create dependency and ill health, Um, systems that are largely about profit. And women I see are coming into this more and more as they take their gynecological, their pregnancy and birth experiences into their own hands, getting off hormonal birth control, taking out their own IUDs, uh, healing their endometriosis or pelvic pain, just taking their health into their own hands 
and recognizing the major flaws of the medical model and licensure and seeing how it harms them and their families, uh, giving up their licenses like me. Um, So when a woman takes this full responsibility, it reverberates into all other areas of her life and her questioning. The food systems, the healthcare systems, educational systems, all of it. And so when we talk about serving sovereign women, or at least coming from this place where we're not promoting dependence in our dynamics, we aren't infantilizing people, we teach them how to do a lot of this at home. And the major fear, I think, from practitioners, whether it's conscious or unconscious, is that they won't be needed anymore. And again, while that may be true, there is always a place for someone to listen and hold space for another there's always a place for someone else to help shift their energy and to witness them in that. There's always going to be women that don't have the knowledge you do, that don't have that skilled trade, and are seeking what you have to offer. And overall, we're meant to heal in relationship. And so there's that balance that we do important work with the skilled guidance of another, but then we recognize where a woman can take some of this into her own hands And remember that she has the power in that. And you're probably going to be the first practitioner that she's ever seen that has this deeper approach and understanding. And make no mistake, like this is felt. This is felt on a deeper level. This is a resonance that she can pick up on and align to. This is the spark potentially to her own path of reclaiming her health in your trust of the body and in your trust of her. And this is the shift from dependent power dynamics to true healing possibilities because a lot unfolds when we can do that. We're going to witness a woman awakening her own deep inner voice that can guide her, that can be a co-creator in sessions. And this is the foundation of what I teach because when I talk about womb healing and pelvic healing and all the imbalances that arise in that space where a woman comes to me, if she's seeking holistic and natural healing, she's not you know, largely relying on pharmaceuticals and surgery, it's going to take time and dedication. And it really does require her to do a lot of this at home in addition to sessions with me, with you. So it requires autonomy and you know, a sense of deep motivation. And it makes absolute sense that people are dependent on the Western medical system. That's the dynamic there because they can't do surgery on themselves, right? They can't make up their own medications. Um, You know, they can make up herbal remedies. (laughs) Natural healing, it carries possibility and it opens up autonomy. A woman can actually take this into her own hands. So there are these simple shifts that you can make right now to change your work for the better by changing your language, how you speak about roles, how you consider women. Uh, Do you subconsciously think they don't have any knowledge and they need you? Do you feel like you have the right to tell her what to do or that you might know better than her? Do you secretly subconsciously judge her for not doing the practices that you offered and knew that they would really help her um do you feel like you might know her body better than she does these questions are some clues that you're operating in a way that may be denying her sovereignty and the ability to step into that deeper in your presence and in her own life after the session with you potentially And so another way to shift your work and balance is to incorporate more self-care teaching into your work. Really consider how much of your work is dependent on you. Do you actually offer anything for her to do at home or is it largely just what you do in the session? It's really something to think about, like how much of your sessions are a co-creation versus your own agenda leading what is happening. How open are you? Do you have, um, here's another interesting one. Do you have an intake form that you read before a session with her? 
Um, I found that that is another interesting piece where, you know, I had an intake form and I really used that as a way to um, feel like I knew who was coming in the door. But you know what? You never really know who's coming in and what they're bringing in with them. And when I just got rid of the intake form and I meditated on being open to her healing and releasing my agenda and just praying on, you know, that she would receive everything she needed for this particular session, praying for guidance. Um, A lot of magic really happened with that shift. So I encourage you to really think about all of these questions I'm asking. If you want to make some shifts in your life and your business and your work, I encourage you to really pause and reflect on these and share what you think in the comments or the group. Making these shifts requires frequent reflection and thinking and talking about all of this in community and with your colleagues, women who are on the same path as you and wanting to be the change that we want to see happen in healthcare and wellness. So let's do this together. I want to hear from you. Uh, So again, feel free to share your perspective in the comments or the group. And till next time. If you are loving this podcast and excited to listen more to these topics of sovereign and instinctual womanhood and motherhood, the call to women's work and more, then here are a few ways that you can support this project and help me continue to put it out there. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which helps reach more women. You can also check out my book, Pelvic Awakening, on Amazon, which is all about womb healing and connection and covers so many topics. And if you love that, you can leave a rating and review there. Um, And then finally, you can also check out my learning library, which includes my wise woman practitioner training personal healing workshops, and more. All the links are in the show notes. And thank you again so much for your support.